Well, good morning. It is great to be back and to have this opportunity to dive back into 1 Thessalonians. As you know, we're in this this multi-part series on 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 11, and this really crucial teaching on the day of the Lord. Uh, we find in, in the Apostle Paul some, some very detailed discussion here and, and instruction on the day of the Lord. There's much confusion about this topic today in the church, and so this is the place to which we go in order to establish our correct understanding of what the Lord has in store. He has not left us in the dark. Now, certainly, there are a lot of details about the future that he has not revealed to us, but he has not intended for us to live our lives in complete ignorance of what he has in store. And this text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, contains the divine word, the divine instruction related to this important concept of the day of the Lord. We have slowly been working our way through this text and this morning, we're going to dive back in and, and finish up this section and look specifically at, the, uh, at verses 9 and 10. And, and as we look at verses 9 and 10 and, and consider the day of the Lord as it relates to the believer, we could title this sermon in a way, The Great Words of Comfort for the Believer in Light of the Coming Day of the Lord. This is a profound text that touches on some very, very important doctrines that, that a Christian can ever contemplate. And what Paul does so wonderfully here is he brings in those precious foundational truths of the gospel, and he brings it to bear on this future, this coming day of the Lord. Let's look at the text. Paul writes in verse 9, and following, he says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Now, we must read those words in light of what Paul has already said. So with that, I want to turn back to verse 1 of chapter 5 and begin reading once again throughout the text to set the context for our study this morning. Paul writes in verse 1, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day of the Lord would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. And our text once again, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you are doing. Now, let's remember that in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, this important text on the day of the Lord, Paul is dealing here with another lack in the Thessalonians' faith. Go back to chapter 3, verse 10. Paul reports how uh, Timothy had brought back a report of the faith of the Thessalonians, and, and, and for the most part, it led to much rejoicing and thanksgiving on Paul's part, yet there still was a lack in the Thessalonians. And that's what motivated Paul here to, to take up the pen and to write. Now, this lack in the faith of the Thessalonians related to several things. He deals with this lack in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, all the way to chapter 5, verse 21. But this lack included a lack with respect to the understanding of the doctrine of the day of the Lord. Now, as Paul begins writing on this in, in the opening verses of chapter 5, he makes it clear that, that there is already information that the Thessalonians possessed on the day of the Lord. And this was unlike the, the information that Paul had to give in the previous chapter in verses 13 to 18 of chapter 4, which dealt with the, the dead in Christ and the rapture of the church. As Paul transitions to deal with the day of the Lord, he he, he reminds them that this was information that, 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 that they already had. And Paul said, there's no need for me to write even to you about this. Why is that? Well, for one thing, it's likely that Paul had already taught on this topic when he was with the Thessalonians. Go back to Acts chapter 17. He had spent several weeks there, perhaps even months in the Thessalonian church, equipping them, strengthening them, teaching them, and undoubtedly he taught on the day of the Lord. But it, it, this is also a topic that is addressed frequently in the Old Testament. And Paul refers to that saying, really, there is no need for anyone to write anything to you because the body of truth on this topic has already been delivered. But Paul nonetheless recognizes in the Thessalonians a, a misunderstanding of the day of the Lord. And, and so he begins by reminding them, these Thessalonian converts, that the day of the Lord, as, as they read of it, even with respect to the Old Testament scriptures and its teaching on the day of the Lord, Paul reminds them that this day and all the wrath involved in it was designed by God for unbelievers, not for believers. And he deals with that in verses 1 to 3, and we've already looked at that in the first part of this series on the day of the Lord in First Thessalonians 5. But he then reiterates that the day of the Lord does not apply to believers because of one important reality, their identity. And he deals with that in verses 4 to 8. The day of the Lord does not apply to believers because of their identity. They are sons of the day. And Paul gives that reason in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 5 as to why the Christians in Thessalonica did not need to fear this day. Their identity who they were in their position precluded them from any impact of this day of the Lord in their lives. 
Paul then now in verses 9 through 11 concludes that the day of the Lord does not apply to believers also because of God's redemptive design. Not only because of their identity, verses 4 to 8, but here in verses 9 to 11, Paul teaches that the day of the Lord does not apply to believers because of God's redemptive design. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want to organize our thoughts around, uh, around four observations to make from verses 9 to 11 in 1 Thessalonians 5. The first one is this, in verse 9, specifically in the first half of verse 9, we will see the assertion of divine deliverance, the assertion of divine deliverance, first half of verse 9. Secondly, we will see the attainment of divine deliverance the attainment of the divine deliverance, and we'll see that in verses 9 to 10, the second half of verse 9 and the first half of verse 10. Thirdly, we will see the assurance of divine deliverance, the assurance of divine deliverance in the second half of verse 10, and then finally, we will see the accountability of divine deliverance in verse 11. The, the assertion, the attainment, the assurance, and the accountability all of these, these thoughts flow out of Paul's assertion here that the church will be delivered from this day of wrath. So let's look at the first of these, the assertion of divine deliverance found in the first half of verse 9. Paul writes this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Now, the very first word of this verse is the, is the conjunction for. It's, it introduces an explanation. And in particular, that little word for introduces the reason why believers must put on the hope of salvation. Notice the end of verse 8, the, the words that immediately precede this word for. In, in verse 8, Paul writes this, but since we are of the day, notice he's dealing with the issue of identity but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We are to put on the hope of salvation. Paul there is, notice he's dealing with the triad of Christian virtues of faith and love and hope. And those virtues reflect what we saw all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, as Paul gave thanks to God for the, for the faith, for the love, and for the hope manifest in those Thessalonian converts. Well, Hope is a big part of why Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. And here in verse 8, he refers to the helmet of hope. Hope deals with the future. It deals with eschatology. And so now after immediately stating that we must put on this helmet of hope, Paul explains why that hope is so crucial. We must put it on. Why? Because God has not destined us for wrath. It is that truth which serves as the protection of our minds, this helmet, and this helmet is made up of hope, hope in the future, understanding of truth as it relates to our futures. Back in verse 5 and 6, Paul motivated the Thessalonians by emphasizing their identity, and now he motivates them by looking at God's intention, 
God's intention. And as he motivates them by God's intention for them, his reasoning will now take on the form of a denial and an affirmation. And, and we've seen this throughout Paul's letter, haven't we? We've seen how often Paul teaches by way of denials and affirmation. We see this right in our text here. Notice Paul says, for God has not destined us. Paul first alleviates the believer's fear and he first buttresses this helmet of, uh, this helmet of, of, of hope by a denial. And this denial is, is focused on this verb destined. He has not destined. The verb here to destine means to consign or to appoint. It emphasizes sovereign determination. Now, in general, this verb that is used here can be used in many different ways. It basically means it means to put in a particular place. That's the the meaning of the verb tithemi that that is used here, but Paul uses it with a much more specific nuance. He he attaches it to the activity of God, and he attaches it specifically to God's sovereign determination. God has not consigned us for wrath. God has not appointed us for wrath. The verb emphasizes that sovereign determination. We see that same verb used, for example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders to be on guard for themselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. The verb made there, translated made, is the same verb. It has the idea of to set in place, to sovereignly determine. God had sovereignly determined that those men who were over the Ephesian church, that they would be overseers, that they would have the function and responsibilities of shepherding that church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, we see the verb used the same way in terms of sovereign determination. And where, where Paul writes this, he says, and God has not appointed us excuse me, God has not appointed in the church first apostles. Uh, I, 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 let me rephrase that there. Uh, let me correct that. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul says God has appointed in the church. God has appointed. He has sovereignly determined in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so on and so forth. This verb here in chapter 5, verse 9, emphasizes God's sovereign determination, his planning. And even within the context of 1 Thessalonians, we, we see that God's plan is, is very significant. It forms the foundation for how the Thessalonians were to understand the Christian life. We can go back, for example, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. There, as Paul gives thanks to God for the great testimony of those Thessalonian believers, he says in verse 4, he says, as he gives thanks to God for, for their testimonies, he then writes this, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. Despite their great testimony that was resounding from Thessalonica throughout all of the province of Macedonia and even to the province of Achaia to the south, Paul sums it all up and, and identifies the ultimate cause of that great testimony. And it comes down to this simple fact. 
Paul says all of this is due to his choice of you. That is God's choice of those Thessalonians. We could even see it further in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. We see, again, Paul's emphasis on sovereign determination. God's sovereignty, not only in election, not only in the selection of those who would believe, but also in the selection of the circumstances of our life. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Now that too is a different verb than is used in chapter 5, verse 9, but the concept is the same. The verb there in 3, verse 3, and the other verb used in chapter 1, verse 4, and this verb used in 5, verse, uh, five verse 9, all of these come together to emphasize God's sovereign determination. And that's what Paul brings in to comfort the Thessalonian church as they think of this impending day of the Lord. Paul asserts, he gives this assertion of divine deliverance. He says, God has not sovereignly determined us for wrath. He has not. Now let's look at that word for wrath for just a moment. This word for wrath is, is not a term that is used to describe mere anger. It is a very important eschatological term. We find it in the New Testament never used to refer to human anger or human wrath. It is reserved exclusively to describe the wrath of God. And it has a specific eschatological idea behind it. We've seen this, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. If we go back there for a moment, we see that the Apostle Paul describes the conversion of the Thessalonians with these words, that they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, that's, that, that's, that's describing half of the, the existence or the experience of these new converts in Thessal Thessalonica. But now notice the second half of their experience as new converts. The, the second half of their experience is summarized in verse 10, where Paul says this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. The, the second half and, and, and this experience of the Thessalonians, the second half of their Christian experience was, was eschatological in orientation. It was not just focused on the present. It was not just focused on, on living out salvation in the here and now. Their Christian experience was very much oriented toward the future. Their eyes were looking forward. They knew the wrath was coming and they were waiting for Jesus who would rescue them from the wrath. The wrath, that is the same word that is used in verse 9 of chapter 5. And so chapter 1 verse 10 mirrors chapter 5 verse 9. And we do see that at the base of their faith, which was solid, the Thessalonians recognized that Jesus would be the one to save them from their wrath. And Paul refers to that in chapter 5, verse 9, by saying, listen, Thessalonians, you already know this. Take comfort in this reality. God has not 
by his sovereign design, has not destined us for wrath. Now, what is this wrath? What is this eschatological wrath that Paul has in mind here? Well, he's just referred to it in the immediate context of chapter 5, verse 9. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 5. Notice what Paul says there. As he describes those who have been destined for wrath, the world, he says this in verse 3, while they, that is unbelievers, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. That is the synonym for the word wrath that we find in verse 9. Notice how back there, as we've looked at this verse already, notice the pronouns. Paul is very clear on that. There are some who will not experience this wrath and others who will. And those in the Thessalonian church, as we are today, are not among the pronoun they. As Paul deals with it in verse 3. And that word there, destruction, is a word that describes this coming wrath. We've looked at this already, but it deserves mention. Go back to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, as the prophet there describes this coming day of the Lord, this coming day of wrath. Zephaniah 1, 15 reads as follows, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Later on in Zephaniah 3, verse 18, we read these words. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Now, some today would say, well, that is just hyperbole. That is just a, a dis description of, of the kind of wrath that God daily pours out among sinners. Well, when you read the book of Zephaniah, there's no indication that we are to, to, to tame down Zephaniah's words to make it sound like the kind of, of consequences for sin that, that is, is coming upon the world even right now, even today. In fact, when we look at Paul's teaching here in 1 Thessalonians 5, this is a very much clearly a future reality. When we go to the book of Revelation, for example, Revelation chapter 6, verses 15, 16, and 17, we see this wrath, this divine wrath, this coming day of the Lord described in these terms from the pen of the apostle John. John writes this, Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Again, there are some who would just look on these words and say, this is poetry. Uh, this is hyperbole. 
John is merely describing what has already come upon the earth. He's merely describing what had happened already in AD 70. He is describing perhaps what happens every day with the consequences of sin. But there is nothing in this text to suggest that we are to tame these words down and domesticate them in that way. Indeed, this is, this is prophecy, but this is vivid description that includes absolute descriptors that involve all who are on the face of the earth. And Paul comforts the Thessalonians, and he said, listen, God has not destined us for this wrath. But not only does Paul have a denial here as he gives us this assertion of divine deliverance, he has what is a what is a beautiful affirmation. Note as we come back to verse 9, the, the presence of the strong contrasting conjunction here, the word but, and that word introduces the affirmation. What has God destined us for? What has God destined the Thessalonian believers? What has God destined the Apostle Paul? What has God destined us, the church, today for? And it's included in that simple phrase, but profound the phrase, for obtaining salvation. This is what God has sovereignly, has, has sovereignly destined us to experience. And when we see this word salvation that is used here, this is not salvation in reference to the forgiveness of sins. The Thessalonians had already experienced that. This is not salvation in terms of the promise of eternal life, that that they would enter into new life and peace with God. No, the Thessalonians had already experienced that when Paul came in and preached the gospel. And according to Acts chapter 17, we read of the conversion of those Thessalonians. No, they had already entered into that salvation. Instead, the salvation that is being described here by Paul in chapter 5, verse 9, is the salvation that is a deliverance from the day of the Lord. So when Paul writes that God has destined us for obtaining salvation, he is describing that that, that reality that the church will be delivered from this coming day of the Lord. That is an understanding that fits perfectly with the preceding context of verses 1 to 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, and it certainly fits well with the context of chapter 1, verse 10. Remember, we looked at that verse already, that the Thessalonians themselves, even in their their infancy as, as believers, were already waiting for Jesus who would rescue them from this coming wrath. Well, there we have it. God has graciously elected us, not only unto eternal salvation, but he has elected us to escape what the prophets of the Old Testament describe, what Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse, what John describes in the book of Revelation chapter 6. Paul indicates here that God has sovereignly destined his church to to, to be rescued to be delivered from this impending wrath. That is the assertion of divine deliverance. Now let's look at the attainment of this divine deliverance. The second half of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. You see, there's a problem that this this raises. This assertion that we see in the first half of verse 9 gives us a, a problem. At least it should create a problem in our minds. 
And if it doesn't, you're not thinking deeply enough. And, and here's the problem. We all deserve divine retribution. We all deserve the experience of the day of the Lord. Let's face it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 describes this so well. Paul writes there, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature, what? We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So how is it that anyone can escape this day? How is it that God can choose some to a different fate than others? How is it that God can choose some of those who were by nature children of wrath, children to inherit that destiny? How is it that he can save them from that fate? Well, Paul explicitly explains this in the second half of verse 9, in the beginning of verse 10, in this attainment of divine deliverance. It's not because of us. It's not because of our merits. It's not because of our achievements. Now, notice what Paul says in, 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 in the second half of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10. He gives this very profound statement. He says this, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. There is the basis, the attainment of divine deliverance. Paul doesn't point to the Thessalonians and say, you're delivered because you live such a good, wholesome, moral, obedient life. Not at all. That is not what attains this divine deliverance. It is attained instead through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Let's look at that in a little bit greater detail. Notice, first of all, that, 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 that preposition that is used there, through. And, and this is so important because this word through introduces how the deliverance from wrath is obtained. It, it emphasizes the concept of mediation. Mediation, and, and who is the mediator? Who is the one who achieves, who attains this divine deliverance? Well, Paul describes him as our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's vocabulary here emphasizes the full specter of this mediator's person and work. He is described in terms of his sovereignty. Notice the first title that is used there. He is our Lord. And that title describes sovereignty. Secondly, he is described according to his humanity. The, the name Jesus, that human name, emphasizes to us so precisely the incarnation of the Son of God. Remember how the angel said to Mary, you will name him Jesus. That's his human name. That is the name of the incarnation. That is the glory of God coming to tabernacle among us. And then to suffer in that humanity on behalf of our sin. And then we have the title, the third one, Christ and that title emphasizes his messiahship. He is the anointed one, the king, the promised one of old, our Lord Jesus Christ. What a precious 
phrase. It is through him that this divine deliverance has been attained. It is through him that this divine deliverance is possible, and it fits beautifully into God's plan, his redemptive plan designed before the beginning of time, that it would be through the atoning work of Jesus Christ that God would preserve his church, not only eternally from wrath, but also temporarily through this wrath that would come upon the earth against all those who disobey. God has designed the means, and that is through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of the importance of Christ Jesus the Lord as our mediator. Let me read for you this statement from Stephen Charnack in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God. He writes this, unless we behold God in and through Christ, the mediator, the terrors of his majesty would overwhelm us. We dare not approach the Father except in Christ because of our sins. We first fasten our eyes upon Christ, then upon the Father. If Christ does not bear our guilt and reconcile us unto God, we perish. Before any man can think to stand before the face of God's judgment or justice, or be admitted to the secret chamber of God's mercy, or partake of the riches of his grace, he must look to the mediator, Christ Jesus. Now come back for a moment to to this attainment of divine deliverance in verses 9 and 10. Note specifically the beginning of verse 10. Here we have it expressed even more explicitly as Paul now describes how the Lord Jesus Christ became the mediator. The phrase is simple. He says this, who died for us. Paul describes the death of Christ with a simple verb to describe it as complete. As the basis of this future deliverance, Paul looks back in time to the historical reality of the atonement. This was the center of Paul's preaching. In fact, if we go back to Acts chapter 17, verses 2 to 3, Luke's account is is given there of Paul's preaching in Thessalonica, and we read there that Paul went into the into the 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 the, uh, the the synagogue there, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with those present, the God-fearing Gentiles and the Jews, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead, saying, "This Jesus, whom I am." claiming to you is the Christ. For Paul, the, the basis of our future deliverance is this historical accomplishment of the atonement on the cross of Christ, and that serves as the basis for his gospel preaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for example, he says this, I, 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 I came to you, brethren, and I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, but I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And later on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says this, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And notice at the very end of this phrase, there is another prepositional phrase which is so important to capture. Paul says, who died for us. He died for us. You cannot help but notice again the pronoun that is used. It is the first person pronoun. 
and it is in the plural, and it stands in distinction from the third-person pronoun that was used, for example, back in verse 3 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, well, they are saying, then upon them, upon them will come destruction, upon them. But this is us. And here we see that the death of Christ is is pictured, emphasizing here through this prepositional phrase for us, we see it emphasizing both substitution and particularity. Christ died for those whom God has chosen. And if Christ had not died for us, then our destiny would be the same as those that awaits the them of verse 3, namely, destruction. This reminds us of that wonderful first stanza in Samuel John Stone's hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Consider the words. The, The stanza goes as follows. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. J.C. Ryle, writing on the importance of the atoning death of Christ, writes this, quote, We can never attach too much importance to the atoning death of Christ. It is the leading fact in the word of God, on which the eyes of our soul ought to be ever fixed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is the cardinal truth on which the whole system of Christianity hinges. Without it, the gospel is an arch without a keystone, a fair building without a foundation, a solar system without a sun. This, after all, is the master truth of Scripture, that Christ died for our sins. To this, let us daily return. On this, let us daily feed our souls. End quote. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here as he reminds the Thessalonians of what they already believe and as he brings that to bear on their anxieties and concerns regarding the future, he brings them back to this historical reality. First of all, the, the, the reality that is true of them, of, of, of an act that happened before time, the, the sovereign destination of God, that sovereign planning of God, his decree, he has not destined them for wrath. But secondly, he brings them back to that moment in history, the atonement of Jesus Christ, that great historical moment that Christ had died for them. Specifically, particularly, and because he had, they could have absolute confidence that no wrath would come upon them. That leads us now to the third observation to make from this text. We've seen already the the assertion of divine deliverance. We've seen as well the attainment of this divine deliverance. Now let's look at the second half of verse 10 and see the assurance of divine deliverance. The assurance of divine deliverance. Paul writes this, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. 
Now, again, we look at the, the, the language here and the very first words that begin this second half of verse 10 are the words, so that. It introduces a purpose clause. It, it describes here now a purpose. And in particular, it describes the purpose for Christ's death on behalf of those who would ever believe. And, and, and before Paul describes the purpose, he's going to get to that in, in, in the, the, the end of verse 10, he introduces or he, he inserts this interesting statement, this, this statement that describes two different conditions. The, 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 the verb or the, the clause reads this way, so that we will live together with him. But this phrase that is in, inserted here, this clause, whether we are awake or asleep, is intended by Paul now to deal with the issue that the Thessalonians were grappling with. He is now bringing truth to bear on the specific situation that was troubling the Thessalonian congregation. Now, this clause is indeed one of the more challenging texts in the paragraph and, and even in the entire letter to the Thessalonians. And, and there are a, a multitude of, of interpretations that have been expressed in the effort to understand what Paul means when he says whether we are awake or asleep. Let me summarize those, those views in, in, into three categories. The first view is this. The verbs awake and asleep are to be understood in their most literal sense. In other words, they are to be understood to refer to a physical reality. Therefore, what Paul is saying there is, is he's saying this, that whether we are literally awake or whether we are literally asleep, in other words, whether we're conscious whether our eyes are open, uh, whether we're up and about, or whether we are lying down, eyes closed, and in deep sleep. Whether one or the other, that we will live together with Christ. That if the day of the Lord comes at that moment, and as that moment begins, and as Christ rescues his church from what is being uh, prepared and poured out on the world, that whether in that moment one is physically awake or physically asleep, there is no need to be concerned. You do not need to stay awake. You can be sleeping and you still will be rescued from what follows. That's the first view and Quite frankly, it's trivial. It's, it's a, a, a weak understanding of what Paul is saying here. He's not giving us permission to, to be able to, to now rest in, in daily sleep. That's not what he is getting at. A more commonly held view is this second view, which takes these verbs awake and asleep in a figurative sense but to refer to the categories of physical life and physical death. In other words, whether we are alive on this earth, alive in our bodies, or whether we are asleep, that is, or whether we have died 
according to the physical body, we will live together with him. Now, those who support this idea would would say this. Now, just a moment. Paul has already used uh, sleep metaphorically, figuratively, to refer to those uh, who have died. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 13, for example, Paul writes this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And in that whole context there, several times, Paul refers to sleep uh, and he's doing so in a figurative sense to refer to believers who have died before Christ coming for his church. The Thessalonians, as we, we saw when we studied that text, were concerned about their, their future participation when Christ comes to get the church and he, he, and he comes to, to bring them to be with him. Would those who have died in Christ have any part of that? And we saw back in verses 13 to 18 that indeed they will have a part. In fact, they have the priority in terms of glorification. They will be raised first. So coming to verse 10 now, there are those who say, well, what Paul is saying is he's referring to those who have died in Christ or to those who are alive in Christ. It doesn't matter. God will rescue them from this coming wrath. Well, not only is there a little bit of a uh, of a logical problem with that, more concerning with that view is the textual problem. You see, there's a big distinction between what Paul writes here in 5 verse 10 and what he wrote in chapter 4 verse 13, 14, and 15. There, when Paul refers to those who have fallen asleep, he uses an, an entirely different verb to refer to those who have fallen asleep in chapter 4, then he does here. The verb difference cannot be ignored. Paul changes verbs here in chapter 5 so as not to communicate that same idea. He changes verbs from the verb koimao used in chapter 4 to a different verb used here to refer to sleeping. And that is intentional on his part to disassociate the two concepts. Paul in chapter 5 verse 10 is not referring to those who have died physically. That's not who he has in view in verses 9, 10, and 11. And that leads us now to our third view. This view also takes the verbs to awake and, and to be awake and to be asleep in a figurative sense, but does not see this as a reference to life and death, but sees it instead in an ethical sense, in a moral sense. Let me summarize it this way. What Paul is saying here is that whether believers are morally alert, or if they are morally lethargic, they will be delivered. Now, a lot of people don't like view three because of theological presuppositions. They believe that that kind of instruction will lead to license in the church. 
that, hey, if if that is what is being communicated here, then that will give permission to believers to live a morally lax life. And we can't have that. We can't give that permission, that license. And so for that theological presupposition, that theological reason, many scholars, many pastors simply cannot interpret chapter 5, verse 10 in those in, in that way. But I want you to notice something. The strength for this third view comes from the near context. Now, notice chapter 5, verse 6 for just a moment. Paul says this. He says, in light of our identity, in light of who we already are because of Christ, he says this in verse 6, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, what I want you to see is this. The same verbs used in verse 6 are used in verse 10. When Paul says, so then let us not sleep, the same verb used there is used in verse 10 when Paul says, whether we are awake or asleep. And when he goes on to say this, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert. That is the same verb as the verb to be awake that is used in verse 10. So that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alert or asleep, we will live together with him. You see, we find here a direct parallel with both verbs, the parallel between verse 10 and verse 6. And we know for certain that in verse 6, Paul is not talking about life and death. He's not saying, so then let us not die as others do, but let us live. He's talking about moral alertness and moral laxity. So then let us not be morally lax as others are, but let us be morally alert and sober. And then in verse 10, the same idea. We will be delivered, Paul says, by the death of Christ so that whether we are morally alert or morally lax, we will live together with him. Now again, for many people, the, that idea grates against what we would say would be all theological sensibility. Does not this provide a license to sin? If, if believers are promised deliverance, even if the coming of the Lord occurs while they are living in this spiritual laziness. I'd like to use the words of Paul that he uses back in Romans chapter 6 when he says this, may geneta, may it never be. That is not the, con the, the consequence or conclusion to draw from the majesty of divine grace. But we must understand this reality, the promise of deliverance from future wrath. Now get this, the promise of deliverance from future wrath is never contingent upon human performance. Let me say that again because it is so very important. And this is, this is a balm to the soul for any Christian who really does struggle with their sin. The promise of deliverance, the promise of this deliverance from future wrath, this salvation from the wrath to come, is not contingent upon your performance. 
It never has been, and it never will be. It is only contingent upon the sovereign determination of God and the historical accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross. Robert Thomas, in his commentary, writes it this way in responding to those who simply cannot take chapter 5, verse 10 at face value in light of the immediately preceding context. He writes this, Since future salvation has been fully provided by Christ's finished work, it cannot be canceled by a lack of readiness. Moral preparedness or unpreparedness does not affect the issue one way or the other. Every contingency has been met through the work done at Calvary by God himself. Christians need not fear missing the Lord's return for his church because they are sons of the light and sons of the day. Their enjoyment of the future resurrection life in union with Christ is certain. End quote. This is precious truth, beloved. Indeed, we do have a problem with antinomianism in the church today. Indeed, we have a problem with those who say they can just say a a, a few words like a magical incantation, and then all of a sudden they have all the glories of heaven promised to them, and they can go on living in the love of sin, under the power of sin, in the presence of sin, and think nothing more of it. Certainly, that has nothing to do with the biblical gospel that calls upon men and women to repent of their sin. We saw that even in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. These Thessalonians had turned their backs on their idols. But let's also make sure to correct another error within Christianity. And it is the error of performance-driven Christianity. The idea that your future salvation... Your future deliverance from wrath rests on your shoulders. Yes, Christ has accomplished it in some sense. He has achieved forgiveness of your sins through his payment of that sin on the cross through that substitutionary atonement. But now what he has done is he's transferred the responsibility to you and Christian, don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Because if you do, you will experience the coming wrath of God. Now that is heresy. That is not Paul's gospel. That is not the biblical gospel. And Paul makes it very clear here as well that all of the Christian life is contingent upon what God has determined and what Christ has accomplished in history. We must be done with the idea of performance-driven Christianity. That we think that salvation is now in our hands and we've got to carry it over the finish line. That is not the biblical gospel. And Paul brings that in here and in their own way, unique to the Thessalonians, but certainly having many, many parallels with, with many Christians today, we need to hear this. That our future deliverance, and this is blessed truth, our future deliverance is contingent upon Christ, not upon us. Not upon us. Now certainly, if you hear those words and you say, great, I am headed out to the bar. I am headed out 
to, to see the prostitute. I am headed out back to my drugs. I'm headed out back to the pornography. I am headed back to my sin. I've been given license. I love it. I want to live there. I want to be there. Listen, I'll make it very clear. This precious truth does not apply to you. You have not come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for those of you who have, who have come to see that you need this gospel, you've come to realize that your sin is hideous, you have no hope, and you've come to believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior. You've come to believe that he was sent to pay for your sins and that you need that gospel, and there's nothing in your hands that you bring simply to the cross of Christ that you cling, then this is the message for you. Because if this is you, you know the struggle with sin. You know that every moment of every day there is wrapped up in that some sense of moral laxity. You are not who you ought to be yet. And sometimes those moments may even go on for some time and and they may even be quite intense and you'll struggle with that reality and say, woe is me, what can I do? I desire to do these other things, but I don't do them. Instead, I do the things I don't desire to do. This text is for you. Paul makes it very clear. Whether you are awake or asleep, The deliverance has been determined and achieved, and you can rest in this assurance. One final note to make about this text, and it is so precious. Notice the very end of verse 10, Paul says, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That prepositional phrase, together with him, is emphatic. Paul doubles up on his prepositions here. He intends to stress personal presence. This is a shared location. Whether we in this life, at the moment when this day of the Lord is about to come, Christ comes for his own, in that moment, understand that we have this precious promise awaiting us that we will be taken to live together with him in the same location. We saw this back in chapter 4, verse 17, didn't we? When we, we read there that then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be with the Lord. We shall be with the Lord. And, and it is that presence with the Lord, that shared location, which will once and for all determine definitively definitively drive out any any desire any any laxity that we might have with respect to sin as john says in first john chapter 3 verses 2 and 3 then we will be like him because we will see him and paul emphasizes this very reality he says in that moment we will be taken to live together with him what we only now rest upon as a mystical reality, our mystical union with Christ, that precious phrase that that Paul so often repeats, that we are in Christ. Understand, beloved, one day that will give way to real presence. We will no longer just say, I am in Christ. We will glory in the reality that at that moment, we will be with him, face to face, 
what a joy that will be. Finally, we have this fourth observation to make from the text, and very quickly, verse 11, we see the accountability of this divine deliverance. We've seen the assertion of it. We've seen the attainment of it. We've seen the assurance of it. Now we see the accountability. Paul brings some practical life to bear on this reality. He says this in verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of what has just been assured What has just been asserted in light of that, dear Thessalonians, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. You see, this is the wonderful reality of the day of the Lord teaching. The day of the Lord has not been designed for us. That destruction that it describes will be for the unbeliever, for the one who has refused the gospel, the rebel. That is the purpose of the day of the Lord, to bring wrath and retribution on them. For the believer, it brings rescue, it brings deliverance, it brings salvation. And so Paul says, as he wraps up this teaching in verse 11, he says, therefore, in light of this, he says, comfort, encourage, encourage one another. The idea here is is comfort. He's used this same verb back in in, in chapter 4, verse 18, in light of the teaching on the rapture of the church and the, the resurrection of the dead. That too was to lead to this comfort. Well, in light of this teaching on the day of the Lord and its inapplicability to the church, Paul says, beloved, comfort one another, comfort one another with this truth. And not only comfort one another, he says this, and build up one another. The word there for build up, the verb means to edify. It has the idea of to improve the ability to function. To edify means, means that, that you, you, you take in, into your effort the, the, uh, the action of, of improving others so that they would live the Christian life better. And so Paul says here, take this teaching, take this wonderful truth related to the day of the Lord and use it to build up others, use it to improve their ability to live out the Christian life. And he says, this is what everyone is to do. This is the responsibility of every believer. Notice he says, encourage one another. And then he says, build up one another. And that second one another is, is actually a little bit more intense than the first one another. The language is slightly different in the English. It doesn't come through, but in the original, the idea there is literally one, the one. He says, encourage one another, referring to reciprocal activity there. But then he goes on to say, and build up one another, or, or more literally build up one, the one. Speaking of that individual focus, as one believer is to edify the other, one the one. Build them up in light of this precious teaching. Now, as we draw this to a close and reflect upon the wonderful, profound truths in this text, I want to leave you with some implications. First, what is the basis for your confidence that God will rescue you from his coming wrath. What is the basis of your confidence? Listen, in light of this teaching, there should be no answer that says, well, it is both God and me. It is God's attainment indeed, but my confidence now in, in deliverance from this coming wrath is also based upon how I live out 
what has been supplied to me. Listen, if that is your response, you need correction. The basis of your confidence that God will rescue you from the coming wrath is found solely in God's sovereign determination and Christ's historic achievement. That's the only basis that you have for being delivered from that coming wrath. Secondly, your confidence can only be anchored in what Christ did for you on the cross and how God determined to apply that to you. And, and certainly that, that is to, to relate then to our third implication here, and it's, it's this, that you are to renounce self-achievement and hope only in him. Now, this is precious truth to all those who are truly struggling with sin, who are, who are humbly aware of, of their own failures, that even having walked in Christ for years or, or having been a believer for decades, you're still painfully and humbly aware of, of the struggle you still face. You find it no problem at all, no difficulty at all of echoing Paul's words by saying, I, I have not yet attained, as he writes in, in Philippians chapter 3, I have not already attained that prize. And, and if, if you're that one and, and you're painfully aware of this, these words are wonderful balm to the soul. Rest in these words. Rest in these words. But there are those who still want to cling to some level of human achievement. Yes, we will talk about how Christ died on the cross for sins. Yes, we'll talk about how God is sovereign in salvation. Yes, we'll say that it is God who is the Lord of salvation, that, that he achieves it, and it is by his grace alone, and yet incipient in so many understandings of the gospel is this is this tendency to wrap in subtly the idea of human achievement. It's still to some extent in my hands. It is still to some extent my responsibility. Well, these words correct you. Let them correct you. Renounce all self-achievement and hope only in the Lord. Boast only in the Lord. And may it be that for each one of us, that if we are alive, when that day of the Lord comes, and whether we are morally sober and alert and vigilant in that moment, or whether we are in a moment of laxity, that when he comes, Christ comes to rescue us from that impending wrath, we would be able to say, all glory be to Christ alone. All glory be to him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the precious truth of the doctrine of sovereign election. We could never and would never choose you. In our sinful nature, in that state of life that once marked us before you changed our lives forever. Our hearts were bent to sin, and even in the best of our moments, we would never choose you truly, purely. Our, our righteousness at that point was as filthy rags. 
And yet, because of your sovereign election, you chose us out of the quagmire of depravity. And we're so thankful for us, for, for, for that and what you've done for us. And we're so thankful for the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We're so thankful that he provided the basis for that election, that salvation from sin and the impending wrath to come. We pray, Father, that these words would now give us joy. Give us joy and confidence, especially as we look and we know the day is drawing ever near. With each passing moment, this day of the Lord is one moment closer. And when we see society falling apart and we see the fulfillment of Paul's words that things will go from bad to worse, when we see that, it brings us to that sober realization that your wrath is stored up and it will not be stored up forever. It will come. It will be poured out. The time of the Gentiles will be filled and your wrath will come. But these words give us such hope. We thank you for their revelation to us. And as we reflect upon them and seek to apply them to live in response to these truths, that you would remove from us any sense of human achievement, that we are the reason why we will be delivered. Not at all. We will be delivered from this wrath for one reason and one reason only, and that is your sovereign determination and the substitutionary atonement of your Son on our behalf. We thank you for those precious truths. Our soul rests in them. We confess them in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.